All right. Well, let me just first say that I do not have sufficient clothing for this temperatures. It's just it's really cold, and my socks are not thick enough. And that's re- that's what's really on my mind right now. Uh, but I'm going to try to talk about something else. Um, that's what I'm thinking about. And also, I just texted my wife and said, hey, are you bored yet? She's just completely by herself. She's sitting in a hotel room. I said, are you bored? And she said, are you kidding me? I'm having the time of my life. <laughs> so uh, she is having quite a retreat. Um, so as I was thinking about what I might want to talk about, and I know how these retreats can go. Often a retreat doesn't feel like a retreat. It feels like I didn't think I signed up for a class. I thought I was going on a retreat, and they can just be much too talky. So I have no intentions of doing that. This is actually a dangerous setup. Right? I'm a seminary professor, and this looks eerily like a seminary classroom, in which when I walk into one, I'm given three hours. And so I'm going to shoot for just two. So I'm, I just want you to know, I'm not going to talk that long. I'm going to try to shoot for two. Um, but when I thought, what, what might, what do I need to hear right now? As I am thinking about going on a retreat and doing things, there were two basic topics, two of my favorite topics, in fact, two of the things that are most often on my mind that kept coming back to me. The first one, obviously, which is my favorite topic of conversation, is me. I was thinking a lot about myself. Um, the other thing I was thinking a lot about is something that I sort of fantasize about but don't get to do very much, which is sleep. Okay, yeah, you were wondering what I was going to say. What word is he about to say that starts with F? Oh, my goodness. Um, but I don't get to sleep very often. This is because I have three children, seven, five, and three. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to decide. Am I going to talk about me and sort of who I am? Of course, I would have veiled it and pretended I was talking about something else, but that's what it would have really been about. Or am I going to talk about sleep? And as I was thinking about this, I, I ran across one stanza in a poem. And I promise this won't be a... It won't be at least an intentionally pretentious talk, but I came across a stanza in a poem that showed me that these two things are actually totally connected. How we think about rest, how we think about something like a retreat, how we think about stopping work and the stuff we do, how we think about sleep, and how we answer the question, who am I, are very closely connected, I think. And I just want to think a little bit about that. But to do that, I just want to start with this line from the poem that I found. This poem was written by Samuel Johnson. Some of you will know Samuel Johnson. He was the chief author of the first English dictionary in the 18th century. And after he had finished this project and sort of carried out the revisions, the editing, he was sort of, well, what do I do now? I'm the dictionary man. What do I do now? What is the purpose of life now that I have finished this massive project? And he wrote a poem as he was feeling the completion of his work and the question mark it put next to his worth and identity. He wrote a poem called Know Thyself. And this is what he said. I find myself still fettered to myself. Cares beget cares, and a clamoring crowd of troubles vex me. Vile dreams and sour sleep. Oh, sleep, sleep, I call, lying where I fret the lingering night, but fear days cold finger. There's two things in that poem that caught my attention. First, he's finished some job and he says, I find myself still fettered to myself. I find myself chained to myself. In other words, when I try to ask and answer the question, who am I? I find myself trying to answer it with reference to me. That's one thing I want to talk a little bit about. But I also want to notice the consequence of him being chained to himself of thinking that he defines who he is, 
he can't sleep. He says, sleep, oh sleep, I say, as I fret through the night in fear the day's cold finger. So he's asking and answering the question, who am I, with reference to himself, and the result is that he cannot sleep. And these are sort of the two things I wanted to think about. And the first is just the common sense assumption that we have that the answer to the question, who am I, should be answered by looking at us. And I grant you that this seems to make sense, right? We're talking about my identity. We're saying, who am I? And we're answering the question by saying, well, this is what I do. This is what I make. This is what I wear. This is who my parents are. This is who I'm from. We think the answer to the question, who am I, is me, right? This is pretty natural. I don't know if you guys know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, but he was a uh, Lutheran in Germany at the time of National Socialism, resistant to the Third Reich, and wound up in a concentration camp because of it. And right at the end of his time in the concentration camp, he wrote a poem called, Who Am I? Wer bin ich? Who am I? And he gave two possible answers at the beginning of the poem. He said, am I what other people say about me? Or am I just what I know about myself? In other words, am I my reputation? Or am I actually sort of the real life that I'm living? Either way you answer that, though, the answer to the question who you are is still you, right? It's what other people think about you, what you've convinced them, what you've been able to project, or it's just actually you, right? So this is where he was, and he's asking and answering that question. And one of the things I realized as I read that is, you know, I totally, not only do I continually believe this, but I certainly believed this when I first went to college. This is when I became aware of the fact that I was assuming that the answer to the question of my identity was me, my own life, whatever it was that I might be good at. And the way this played out for me is that, as Joe just mentioned, I played lacrosse. And it doesn't matter now. I would have never told you then. If you had asked me when I was sort of 19, hey, are you any good at lacrosse? I would have said, eh, you know, I try really hard. Um, now I can say, because nobody cares, I was actually pretty good at lacrosse. You know, I had had a lot of success in high school, and I went to college, and I didn't realize it, but I was clearly, functionally, assuming that if anyone at college might like me, it's gonna be because I'm a good lacrosse player. Right? This is the thing about me that's actually worth something. Again, I didn't know that about me until it got exposed, and here's how it happens. And I know lacrosse is sort of catching on in Birmingham. We were driving here, and I said, oh my gosh, we were, I think we were in Mountain Brook somewhere, and I said, look, a lacrosse goal one of the people in the car said, oh, it's getting popular. Somebody else said, oh, I thought that was a hammock, um, which I thought was very funny. I think it was a joke, but I thought it was a very funny comment. So just to be clear, in case you don't know, lacrosse is a game that's played by humans, and it's played on grass. I tell you that because it's relevant to the story, because I met a girl over a bowl of Captain Crunch very early. She's currently in a hotel room in Birmingham, Alabama, having the time of her life. But I met her over a bowl of Captain Crunch, and I really liked this girl. And I got to know her a little bit better. Uh, sort of two to three weeks went by, and I was thinking, man, okay, I really like this girl. I've, I think it's time to let her in on the good news that I'm a good lacrosse player. I think I'm going to break her the good news. And this is just going to make her day. And so we have this moment. See, lacrosse is a spring sport, and it's the fall right now. And it's just been freshman orientation, so we haven't really gotten into the fall season even. And so I decide to tell her, and I say, hey, you know, 
I've got some really good news for you. I play lacrosse. And she looks at me and she says, lacrosse? I think I've heard of that. That's played on horseback in water, right? And I thought, I mean, I can't tell you all the things that I was able to think in that moment. They were everything from, oh, maybe this isn't the most intelligent woman I know, which in fact she is. But um, I mean, she invented a sport in which if you played it, you would die. I think we can all agree that there's no, there's no surviving this game that she invented. But she also showed me, not only does she not care about lacrosse, not only does she not know about lacrosse, sports are clearly not her thing. Right, the one thing that I was banking on suddenly got pulled right out from under me. And in that moment, in an instant, I just thought, well, there's a lot of fish in the sea. Right? I'm sure this relationship is over. No chance that this girl's going to still be interested in me. I completely felt that, as if I had sort of fallen into this black hole where I had nothing to rely on. And you know, the, the story ends okay. She actually just didn't care. And she just kept carrying on in the conversation, which was one of the greatest acts of grace and mercy I've ever experienced, <laughs> that she just sort of stayed and talked to me. But that's a whole nother talk. But the point is, what I was assuming is that something about me was the answer to the question, who am I? I was, like Samuel Johnson said, fettered to myself. I was chained to myself. My notion of who I was was tied in this sort of ununtiable knot to my own life, to my own achievements, to my own sort of pedigree, right? And I think that because we're inclined to do this, this is actually the reason why nobody can sleep. And I think this is what Samuel Johnson was getting at. He said, I find myself fettered to myself. I've just finished this big project, and yet I'm so nervous. What are the reviews going to be? Maybe I'll never do anything good again. Maybe I've done the best I have. Right? He was so nervous about how this one thing he had done related to the bigger question of who he was that he couldn't sleep. And I don't know if you know this. This is why it was very important that I had my notes. I don't know if you know this. But in fact, nobody can sleep anymore. I, I have statistics to prove this. Now, you can, you can probably sleep, so this isn't about you. But apparently, nobody sleeps anymore. Let me just tell you a few things. In 2014... Insomnia was declared a national epidemic in the United States of America, a national epidemic. And this is some of the things that's happened because of it. The sleep industry now is a $32 billion per year industry, right? And you would think that that means that we're sleeping better, right? But of course, insomnia is an epidemic. So something's disconnecting here, but there's all kinds of exciting projects. I had way too much, I got too into this as I sort of pursued this sleep line. I found some really interesting things if you would like to help yourself sleep. Everything from kind of the mundane sleep-inducing chocolates, for example, um, which I think could be a funny joke to play on someone on Valentine's Day, but just take that for what it's worth. My favorite was there's this $12,000 mattress, which is made of horsehair and coconut husk. And I just think that sounds great. So I was thinking about getting that. Um, but the more sort of the more noticeable thing is that in every single one of the G8 countries last year, the number one downloaded app on iTunes is the what's it called? I want to get the name right. It's the sleep cycle alarm clock. This thing will sort of wake you up through the rhythms of your REM sleep and this kind of thing to give you a perfect sleep. 
in every single one of the G8 countries. This was the main downloaded thing. Okay? And what's happening is really interesting as it relates to sleep. The thing that's happening is not only can we not sleep, but people are pointing out how important sleep is. But not so you can rest, but how important sleep is if you want to be more productive. Right? This is what's happening. Sleep, rest, is being co-opted by our desire to work more, work harder, work better. And the result is, of course, that we can't sleep because now it's bearing all this pressure. So there was, for example, a, uh, an editorial written in the Times in 2014 with the title, I kid you not, relax, you'll be more productive. Right? Now, I just think that's great. I just think that catches it so perfectly. And what's happened, and this is an essay that I really, if you're interested in this at all, which you shouldn't be, but I happen to be, um, Eve Fairbanks in um, an essay called How Did Sleep Become So Nightmarish? She said, basically, what's happened is two things. One, we've become convinced that sleep is so important that if you want to perform at a high level, you need to sleep, quote, at a high level. You have to, have a, you have to be a high-level sleeper. You need to be a productive, efficient sleeper if you're going to be a productive and efficient worker. So that was the first thing she noticed. And two, she said, the good news is you can improve your sleeping with intense effort. You can become an efficient and productive sleeper if you just work really hard. And as I was sort of piecing all of this stuff together, and I, I was fascinated by this stuff. I was researching it at like 3 in the morning. Um, and thank you. I thought that was very funny, too. Um, as I was piecing this together, what I realized is that when the sleep industry took off, when it went from being sort of a $4 billion a year industry to a $32 billion a year industry, you can see a direct trend. It stopped marketing sleep as rest and it started marketing sleep as work. And as soon as it started moving away from the notion that it's a time where you take a break, where you're passive and you're not making any contributions to your resume, and it found a way to bring it in to something we do that makes us more productive, more successful, right? Adds things to our resume or our pedigree things that we can, when we're chained to ourselves, have things to be happy about. Once sleep was not marketed as rest, but as work, you look at the charts, it just takes off. People started eating it up and buying it like crazy. And I think this is one of the most interesting things in the world. Our mutual friend, David Zoll, once said, when he was looking at some of this research with me, he said, that's enough to make you want to take a nap. And I thought that was very funny too. But the problem is, you can't take a nap. Unless, of course, it's a power nap and it will help you be more productive. Then maybe you can take a nap. But the point is, and here's what I'm trying to say. The point is we can't sleep. One, because we've put all this pressure on sleep. And it's the same pressure we put on everything else. It's the pressure of our lives and our productivity and our work being part of the answer to the question, who am I? And someone who understood this very well was Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote what's well, sort of a little commentary on the Ten Commandments. It's called the Treatise on Good Works. And when he comes to the uh, commandment to observe the Sabbath, to have a day where you rest, he says something very interesting. He says, this is a bitter holy day. 
for the old Adam to cease from work is to die and be dead. And I think I actually understand what he's saying. The part of us, which is just a name for original sin, the old Adam, the old creature that wants to define ourselves, that wants to answer the question, who am I on the basis of me, cannot afford to stop and rest. And if you're going to, if for physiological reasons you're going to have to take a nap, if you're going to have to sleep, well, then you've got to find a way that that becomes part of your working. Right? It's got to be part of a way. So why did you go on a men's retreat? Don't actually answer that question because I'm not talking about you. But why might you take you know, sort of 24 hours out of your life to rest? Well, unless the answer is it's really going to help on Monday, right? then it doesn't make sense for the old Adam to be here. Unless this is going to make you more efficient, add something to your resume, right? Clear your head and become something you can do so that the answer to the question, who am I, is answered more impressively. This doesn't make sense in this whole scheme. And the result is, is that we wind up living, and this is why I keep coming back to this phrase, we wind up living, like Samuel Johnson said, chained to ourselves, fettered to ourselves. The one thing we're not free from, whatever we may imagine, is ourselves. We can't get rid of me. There's no space or distance or breathing room between me and me. I'm sort of stuck with me wherever I go. This is one of the horrible things about going on a retreat. You think, well, I'll just get away, right? I'll just get away because I'm sure it's that person that's the problem. I'm sure it's that circumstance at work. I'm sure it's that thing that's going on with my children. So I'll just go on a retreat and I'll get away. And you get there and you find out that your fundamental problem came with you. It's the worst thing. You may even have a room all to yourself, and yet you're still saying, oh, no, right? If I have the same problem now, then just maybe the problem is me, right? That's a very unfortunate thing to realize, but it's a necessary thing to realize because we find ourselves chained or fettered to ourselves. We're trying to define our identity on the basis of what we do. Our actions, our attributes become the answer to the question, who am I? You might put it like this. The expression of original sin, what it looks like to believe the serpent's lie, you will be like God, is to live our life according to the lie that work, not rest, not receiving, but work, what you do, work makes you free. This is sort of the banner or the motto that the old Adam flies. Work makes you free. But do you know where those words were actually inscribed? Do you know where they actually listed? They were inscribed on two gates. One of them was Auschwitz, and the other one was Dachau. Two concentration camps. And over it, it said, Arbeit macht frei. Work makes you free. And it was a lie then, and it's a lie now. When you walk through the gates and you live under the motto, work makes you free, you define who you are. When you walk through those gates, you do not find life. You find death. You do not find freedom. You find slavery. And you do not find rest. You find, I can't sleep. Sleep, sleep, where are you? 
And so here's the question. Here's just my honest question, really the only thing I'm trying to say. Um, but I just felt like I had to talk a little longer than this. So if you haven't paid attention yet, that's okay. Um, I really like audiences that drink before we talk. There's two reasons. One, because then you can talk about alcohol and they automatically laugh, which is what just happened. The other thing is you're sort of only half here. So, I mean, this could, this could be going very badly, and it could be very bad. And at the end, you might say, I think that was pretty good. I have no idea what he said, but I, I think that was all right. I felt it was just sort of soothing. It was nice. I was feeling restful. I might sleep tonight. So however you're receiving this, that's fine. But here's what I actually want to say. Here's the question. Is there any way in which this chain that's fettering us to ourself might be unlocked? Is there any way in which we might get some space from ourselves, some breathing room between me, who I really am, and me, right? the guy that I couldn't even get away with by coming here, get away from? And one of the helpful things, I think, is that, well, we have to admit that living under this sort of motto that work makes you free doesn't lead to life, but it leads to death. It means the only way there could be real freedom, any way we could be unchained from ourselves, is if God has something to say to us that's stronger than death itself. There's no way to get around that. This is going to lead us into the grave. That's where it takes us. There's no way to sort of survive yourself. But can, maybe, God say something to you when you can't sleep? And when you can't survive. And this is what I want to say. Here, at this sort of impasse, where you're chained to yourself and you don't know how to get free, and you ask, is there anything for God to say? I think what we find is a different account of identity, a different answer to the question, who am I? An answer that doesn't start with me, but will start somewhere else. And it's an account of identity that lifts the weight of your own worth off your shoulders and puts it on the shoulders of the one who said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Think about what Jesus actually promised in the face of what's actually going on. Insomnia is an epidemic. We're spending $32 billion a year because we can't sleep even when we get a coconut husk mattress. Right? We are really trying to pull this off ourselves. And Jesus comes and says, I will give you rest. What might that actually mean right? in 2015 when I just got my sleep cycle alarm clock? Right? This is what I'm trying to ask. And to do that, I just want to tell you or remind you of two passages of Scripture that you probably know well. They're both from the Apostle Paul. And they both, I think, go right to the core of how the Bible thinks about the answer to the question, who am I? So just two quick passages from Scripture. The first is 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is just said that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. And then he lists a bunch of people that the risen Jesus appeared to. He lists Peter and James. He says more than 500. And at the very end, starting in verse 8, he lists himself. And he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And then he has this really interesting account of who he is. He says, I was unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But 
by the grace of God, I am who I am. And I don't know if you heard it in those words, but there's a disconnect there or an unlocking of the chain between Paul and who he actually is. When he talks about himself, who he would be on the basis of the life he's lived, he says, I'm unworthy. My resume is that I persecuted the church. I'm unworthy to be an apostle. But then he grounds his identity somewhere else. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And here is a different kind of identity, right? Paul is not the answer to the question, who is Paul? For Paul, the answer to the question, who is Paul, is the grace of God. On that basis, I am who I am. And that's really worth hearing. Because when Jesus appeared to Paul and called him by grace to be an apostle, Paul hadn't cleaned up his act. He hadn't sort of had a change of heart or even sort of hesitated. He was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church. He was caught in the act of doing the explicit thing that made him unworthy to be an apostle. And while he was caught in the act, disqualifying himself, Jesus appears to him and calls him to be an apostle. Right? And he says, I'm unworthy, but by grace, I am. And what I want to suggest to you is that that's my story too. That's your story too. If we are committed to asking and answering the question, who am I on the basis of ourselves? The only answer can be, I'm unworthy. That's the only confession we can have about who we are, if we're the answer to the question. But Paul doesn't stop there. I'm unworthy, but by grace, I am. And he points us somewhere else. And there's one other place, and this will sort of bring us home. There's one other place where Paul talks about who he is in relationship to this grace. And he says this. This is Galatians 2, verses 19 and 20. Galatians 2, verse 19 and 20. And there he says, through the law, I died to the law. And then he comes to his key confession. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But the key expression there is, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ. As Paul sees it, the way he's been unchained from himself, the way he's gotten some distance between who he is, the life he lives in the flesh, to use his expression, but who he is, What God sees and says when he looks at him is that he has actually died. That Christ's death was his death. And that he no longer lives but Christ. And this seems to me to be the core Christian confession. When the question comes, who are you? The answer is not, well, I'm from fill in the blank. My mom and dad are fill in the blank. I went to school at fill in the blank. What I do for work is fill in the blank, right? Those are all fine answers to the question. If the question is like, where were you born? You can answer the question. But if the question is, who are you? The answer is, not I, but Christ. It's, I'm unworthy, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
What that means, in other words, is that the deep and final answer to the question of who you are is not based on what you have done or will do. The deep and final answer to the question of who you are, what God sees and says when he looks at you, is what he has done, is doing, and will do for you in Jesus Christ. Your identity as a beloved son of God in whom he is well pleased is not anchored in your attributes and achievements, but in the one who loved you and gave himself for you. You have been crucified with Christ and you no longer live, but Christ. And I don't know if you hear there what I hear there. Remember I said the only way we might be able to leave these chains that tie us to ourselves is if somehow there's both death and a word stronger than death. And that seems to be exactly what Paul says there is. I've been crucified. I no longer live, but Christ. And that's what he's saying here. The Christian life actually is right now life after death. The Christian lives not with death in front of them, but with death behind them. And when we use expressions like rest in peace, we're not actually describing the future. We're describing what Christ promised as the present. Rest in peace, he says to us now. Come unto me, all you who are weary and cannot sleep and are buying $12,000 mattresses, and I will give you rest. And he gives us rest by giving us himself. That's how Jesus gives us rest. He gives us himself in his death. And what this gives us, I think, is some breathing room, a little distance between me and me. Because I'm not me. And this is where I've been building the whole time to this glorious line from Bob Dylan, which inspired this whole thing. Right, so you thought I was actually interested in Samuel Johnson's poetry, but I just needed to say something so I could share this amazing line from Bob Dylan with you, which captures the very core of this. Because remember, what I've been saying is that who you are is not based on what you do or don't do, but who you are is based on what God has done, is doing, and will do for you in Jesus Christ. And of course, Bob Dylan would capture that perfectly. He said simply, thank God I'm not me. Thank God I'm not me. And if that's true, well, then just maybe we'll be able to sleep tonight. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so some questions? Yeah, absolutely. Question? You're so tired. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how it relates to some things you think about life, work, and experience, life addiction, or a difficult marriage, dead-end job, depression, something like that. Kind of besides that, what Yeah, well, I mean, what it's going to actually look like is going to be completely different. And the, the thing to say, and I don't want to steal my own thunder because I have to say something again tomorrow and I'm going to... I'm going to try to ask an honest question because I've just said things like, hey, rest in peace. That's the present experience that we have. Well, that doesn't really feel like it. 
right? And I want to take that seriously tomorrow morning after you've had a terrible night's sleep. I want to say, guys, I just told you that you should sleep well. What do you mean you're so tired? Right? And we'll sort of talk about that. So how it actually plays out, right? How this thing that is true. I mean, you actually have died. You actually have been crucified with Christ. You actually are not you. When God looks at you, what he sees and says is based on Jesus. I actually believe all of those things. I can't tell you how rarely I live like I believe those things. I, I can actually sleep at night because that's true, right? If that's true, then why am I still awake at three in the morning reading about sleep, thinking that maybe it will help me fall asleep? It's never worked, by the way. I sort of get on the internet and think, well, I'm having trouble sleeping. Maybe if I Google, how do you fall back asleep? I'll have no problem. That's never worked. I just want you to know. So um, the first thing I want to say in response to that is it's not easy. It's not easy to sort of just connect the dots between this is true and therefore it sort of starts playing itself out. But what it does do is create at least the capacity for compassion in two ways. Compassion for the person suffering, the person who's chained to themselves, and actually, at least theoretically, compassion for myself, right? Because I might be struggling with addiction, but that doesn't define who I am. I might be stuck in a marriage that's just not quite working. Certainly wasn't what I dreamed it would be. But her love for me doesn't define who I am. My love for her doesn't define who I am. And yet, what happens once you say those things, once those pressures are taken off, is it at least in theory, and I just want to put it that way, at least in theory creates the possibility that, okay, well, maybe I'll give this my best shot. Or, you know, there's probably a lot going on, and I can take it a little less personally when I receive that. And I mean, you see this all the time in Scripture. The massive contradiction between our behavior, which we think defines us but doesn't, and yet what God sees and says when he looks at us. The great example, as I see it in Scripture, is the church in Corinth. Right? The church in Corinth was a complete mess when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. I'm just going to give you a couple things that come to mind off the top of my head. They were sort of dividing up into teams based on who their favorite apostle was. This person said, I'm on team Peter. I'm on team Paul. Then these jerks played the trump card. I'm on team Jesus. Right? Those people are so pious. Um, they were taking each other to court because their infighting was so bad that they couldn't settle it. So there's lots of sort of lawsuits going on. They were denying the resurrection of the dead. There was a, quote, form of sexual immorality not known among the Gentiles. A man is with his father's wife. It's a notoriously difficult phrase to translate, um, but we won't talk about that. And um, the worship service is so chaotic that a group of people are arriving early, drinking all the wine and getting drunk. And when the next sort of wave of people get off work, it's probably a distinction between rich and poor here, the next people come, the communion wine is all gone. They can't even participate in the Lord's Supper, and they're stuck with a bunch of drunk people. Now, this is what's going on at Corinth. And Paul writes to these people because he knows about this. And he says the most amazing thing to them. I mean, if I wrote to them, I would have done, you know, that Bob Newhart skit where he says, I can sort of solve any of your problems in like 30 seconds, whatever it is. The guy's like, my problem's pretty big. I don't know if you can solve it. No, I can. And he sort of starts to talk. Well, my problem is that I stop it. Right. And he just starts yelling. Oh, my gosh. And he sort of tries to tell a story. Stop it. That's what I would have said and probably used a few other words as well. But Paul writes to this church where he had spent at least two years living with them, working with them, preaching to them. And he goes off to plant another church, and this is what happens. And you can imagine 
what you'd want to say writing back to them. You know, what are you doing? But he says the strangest thing. He writes to them and says, to the church that is in Corinth, to those who are called holy in Christ Jesus, to the holy ones or the saints, grace to you and peace. Just in his greeting to them, he calls them holy and pure and sanctified in Christ Jesus two times and wishes them grace and peace. He identifies them and calls them and names them, not on the basis of how they're behaving, but on the basis of what God has done for them in Jesus. And both with ourselves, so this is very hard to do, but especially in talking to other people, we need to do this sometimes. To the person who's trapped in a cycle of addiction, right? You are a holy one in Christ Jesus. You can tell them who they actually are. And it removes the weight. It doesn't make it easy, but it removes the weight of their own worth and their own identity from the question of, am I going to beat this addiction or not? And they're free to either beat it or not beat it. And obviously, it's much better to not be addicted to fill in the blank, right? But who you are is not defined by that, which actually creates the capacity to address it as what it is. Not the answer to the question, who am I? But am I going to be around to see my kids graduate from college? Right? Which is a big and important question. But it takes the sort of burden of the question of identity off. That's really all I'm trying to talk about. I'm just trying to say what Bob Dylan said. Thank God I'm not me. Under what conditions is that true? And it seems to me that Paul laid those out. Right? The conditions are, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but he does. Now I've got some breathing room from myself. And all my actions, all my fears, all my questions, all my problems, all my successes, the good and the bad, don't carry the weight of who I am, right? My performance and my action is untied from the question of my identity. And to me, that sounds like freedom. To me, that sounds like, well, maybe Jesus meant it when he said, I will give you rest. And just maybe I'll sleep tonight, but I I won't. Um, I'll try. How does, and maybe, this is, maybe the answer comes tomorrow, so, so just tell me if that's okay. How does the sort of average run-of-the-mill disciple in the vortex of their own yep. life who's never considered that there might be, like myself, uh, probably, that there might be an identity aside from who you are? Yep. How, how do we remind ourselves? How, how, do, we, how do we begin to, to try that on and wear it around? Yeah, this is a great question. It's interesting. I like that language. Try that. How do I try that on? That's actually exactly the language Paul uses. When Paul's telling people, and it's in these very same letters where he's talking about this stuff, he never sort of says, this is who you are in Christ. Therefore, act like this and act like that and act like that. He'll say things like, take off the old nature and put on the new nature. Wear what you are. Right? So that's actually the imagery he uses too, which I think is that sort of life and death imagery again. But I think there's two things I would want to say to that. Um, the first is simply that the question was, you know, how do you, how do you get some traction in this if you've never even thought about it? Right? And the first thing is just to say how rare it is that we ever would think about this. I mean, that's why I spent most of the talk talking about things like sleep and our natural assumptions. Because everything in us just assumes that the answer to the question, who am I, has to do with me. It's my identity after all, right? I must be the answer to the question, who am I? That just makes sense. And to get a little space from that is really hard. And it's not something you're going to get anywhere. But what I think I mainly want to say in terms of how can you 
have that assumption confronted is primarily that you can't do it yourself. It actually needs to be spoken to you, right? And the main places where this is going to happen are going to be um, places like reading scripture, a sermon that's actually talking about this kind of stuff, not a sermon that's telling you what to do, but a sermon that's telling you who you are in Christ, which is a big difference. You'll hear it with your taste buds when you come forward to receive communion, and you'll hear the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, and you realize that when Jesus is given to you, what he's giving you is his very self as the answer to the question, who am I? These are the kind of ways in which God says this word that disrupts our common sense assumptions and sort of gets to us through our things. Um, but it's very hard to preach this to yourself. This has actually become, uh, in some of the circles I run, in a very trendy expression, preach the gospel to yourself, people are always saying. I just find that I can't do that. When I try to preach the gospel to myself, it sounds a lot like, well, just try harder, <laughs> right? Well, just stop doing that. I'm like, ah. I didn't think it was supposed to sound like that, but every time I try to say it to myself, that's what it sounds like. I need someone to say to me, you are not you. You are what God has done for you in Jesus. In whatever capacity, to me that's what a church is. A church is a place that says that, whether it's in the pulpit or in the sacrament or in a counseling session or in a group like this or just with a friend you have who will say it to you. We need people who will tell us the truth about who we are. And it's in hearing that and this is going to be a little more theological than I want, but it's in hearing that, Romans 10:17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's hearing the promise that Christ has given to you that actually creates the faith and the conditions in which you believe it. Right? Christ is given in the word. And when you have Christ, you have rest. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah? So I maybe just Yep. Can you unpack a little bit more how that works out in terms of success, in terms of being freed from success? Yeah, well, I think to be freed from yourself is to be freed from yourself completely, right? And it means the baggage that comes with our failures or our deficiencies, which we're very aware of, and the fears associated with that, we're freed from that. But it also means the things that go fairly well. And success is a tricky thing, right? Because success doesn't mean something that God would look at and say, well, that's good enough, right? There's no such thing in human life. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. No one's had that success in any of the things they've done. So success is a relative term in that respect, but there's still good things like love for your kids or a good decision at work, right? Or you made a good choice going to that school. Or you know what? That's actually a good school. And there can be these things which are good. But when those things carry the weight, there's almost more of a temptation to misuse or to have a sort of anxiety-inducing relationship with your successes when you think that your successes define and determine who you are. And when you relate to your successes, the good things in life that way, they're not good things. They're idols. That's what we call them. That's the technical word. They're things that you're worshiping or relying on to save you, which is what God gets to do. And so it's only, my wife is probably texting me to say, I'm having such a good time. 
Um, just sort of felt some heart palpitation. I'm either having a heart attack or my wife is having a great time. But it's only, I think this is really important, our successes can only be the relative good that they are, right? If they actually have the strings cut between their sort of actions and our identity. Because if our successes are just the things that we're trying to leverage to answer the question, who am I? Then they become bad things. They just become expressions of sin and idolatry. But if they're freed from sort of negotiating our relationship with God, right? If our successes don't become the sort of stuff we offer to him and say, what are you going to see and say when you look at me now on the basis of all this good stuff? But we let that relationship be fully and finally determined by what he's done in Jesus. And we let that stuff get filtered out of there by the gospel and just sort of exist down here in our relationships with our neighbors, our children, our co-workers, our spouses, our friends, and just be love your neighbor and your successes can live down there. Then they can both be good things, but things that you're freed from in the sense that they don't define you. So I both want to make sure we get them out of that relationship right, out of your relationship with God. They don't negotiate it, and they don't renegotiate it. It's not like God will start a relationship with you on the basis of Jesus, but then as time goes on, you know, you have to sort of come back and renegotiate or restructure the contract based on your successes or failures. It doesn't work like that. It's a final contract. That's a terrible expression um, to use in the nature of this relationship, but it doesn't get changed. So first I want to get it out of there, and that's what I mean when I say we're freed from it, but we're freed from it in that sense. That also means that we're free for relative successes in the world. To sort of give it a shot, you know? I'm going to try to love my kids as well as I can. Most of the time I'm going to be anxious about how I'm doing it and sort of trying to get it back into this relationship. But that's not where it belongs. It belongs down there for their sake, right? So I would want to put it where it belongs, free it from that relationship, and just let it be what it is and give it your best shot. I think I saw. Yep. Yeah. I was just thinking about um, that John, and I, I may have it wrong, so you can jump and correct me if I read it. Is it is it Nicodemus that Jesus is talking about? The Pharisee, yep. and, he's, and he says, you know, in order to enter the, the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. Yep. Um, and, and and so I, I find it interesting that. Well, I mean, I, I'll, I'll just ask you, you know, what what is, is what Paul is saying about dying to your, yourself and sin, um, similar, the same thing as what Jesus is saying about you must be born. Yeah, I take them just about exactly the same way. This is a motif that starts in the Old Testament, runs right through the life and teaching of Jesus, and then is picked up by his earliest interpreters, Paul and Peter and all these people. So think in the Old Testament. You've got all this imagery. You have a heart of stone, and what you need is a heart of flesh. Right? That's Jeremiah. Or in Ezekiel, you have a valley of dry bones. And only when the Spirit comes do they get flesh and they come back to life. Circumcision in Deuteronomy is not a matter of the flesh, but a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So there's all this stuff that somehow there's got to be some kind of rebirth, right? And then Jesus comes along and says things like, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and die, it can bear no fruit. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me and die. Because that's what you do on a cross. And then he says to Nicodemus, and poor Nicodemus, I mean, this guy had no idea what Jesus was talking about. Jesus in the Gospel of John is just so chatty. He's just talking, talking, talking. And nobody ever knows what he's talking about. He's like, if you want to have part of me, you must eat my body and drink my blood. 
That's a hard saying. That's an understatement. What the heck are you talking about? And he says to Nicodemus, who seems sincere, I mean, he sort of comes at night and uh, he's kind of testing Jesus out, but he seems sincere. And Jesus says, look, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says something interesting that totally exposes the fact that he operates on the assumption we do. He says, I must be born again. How do I do that? Do I have to enter a second time into my mother's womb? He hears the language, you must be born again, and co-ops it into something he's got to do. This is a perfect parallel for what we do with sleep, right? Sleep is not something you can do to yourself. I will put myself to sleep and work very hard. Nicodemus, okay, I mean, I'll give it a shot, Jesus. I'm not sure my mother would be comfortable with this. (laughs) This sounds like an extremely awkward doctrine of salvation, but I'll try because I really want to be in the kingdom of God. And Jesus then just says, a lesser person is born not of the flesh, but of the spirit and of water, right? In other words, this is going to have to be something God does. And this is the language that runs all the way through. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. You have to die. You have to not be you. You have to, in some fundamental sense before God, be me. I have to be the basis for what God says and sees when he looks at you. And that's why I'm here. Right.